Our topic tonight is Israel, Iran, and ISIS. What's next? I wish that was a cheery topic. Um, I get people emailing me and tweeting me every now and then, why can't you write a book that's humorous? Some sort of, some, you know, you, that when people hear me, they are surprised often if they haven't heard me before that, because they think I'm funny. And you can, you can see where I got that from. And, uh, and uh, well, I, you know, I tell people, look, I, you know, when I teach about these terrible, dark things, I, you know, I, I don't want it to all be so dour. We want to add a little levity because the Lord is good and he is sovereign and he is coming. You know, the, our Lord Jesus Christ is coming as the king, not just a king. He's coming as the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and he's not running for office. Right? He. Uh, he's already completed all of his debates, and he's good. He's won. And so that is our hope. And the Bible reminds us time and time again uh, in prophecy that even though some prophecies tell us that war is coming and rumors of wars will be heard and persecution will increase and families will break up and apostasy, people will leave the church, leave the faith and all these terrible things will, will intensify and expand and get worse as we get closer to the return of Christ. At the same time, as was noted earlier, Matthew 24, verse 14 says, this gospel, which of course is the Greek word for good news, this good news shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end shall come. That's the promise, that the good news, that no matter how bad it is around the world, the good news that God loves us, and he sent his own son to die on a cross to pay the penalty for our sins and that he rose again from the dead and that he's coming back and wants to adopt us into his family. That's the good news. And that's going to get preached to every nation before the end comes. And that's encouraging. Um, now, let me open up with a passage of scripture beyond that one. And then we're going to talk about why the gospel is so important because of how dark the world is getting. And I, as I said, the first 40 minutes or so are going to be fairly bleak. We'll take a break. <laughs> we'll do an offering. We'll come back and we'll do questions. And in that time, I, you know, I hope someone will ask. If they don't, I will, I will ask and answer the question, is there any hope? <laughs> Tell me something that God is doing in the Middle East that's, that's helpful, that's hopeful, that's good. And there's so much. And you'll have to wait to the Q&A for that. So... At least you know where we're heading. And by midnight, we'll be done. So. Uh, okay. In Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 49, let me just read a passage uh, to kind of set up our, our, our topic tonight. This is the Lord Jesus speaking, and he says, I have come to cast fire upon the earth. And how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo. And how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Now this is not normal, this is not the type of language we expect from Jesus. 
We expect him to be, you know, saving little kittens, you know, and giving candy canes to children. I mean, the, the sort of the image that people have developed is that Jesus is always gentle and always nice. Now, he, he was, is always loving, but part of love is telling the truth so that people who don't understand how much danger they're in do understand it. If they don't understand how, what the risk their soul is in, that they would come to understand it. And Jesus says, do you suppose that I came to grant peace on the earth? Now this is Jesus as a Jew living in Israel saying to Jewish people, did you think I was gonna come to bring peace? And they're all like, yes. And why do we think that? Because the prophets told us that the Messiah would bring peace, right? Isaiah chapter nine, for unto us a child is born, a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, right? Among other things. So, so yes, the Messiah is going to come. He's going to be a child, but he's going to actually be Mighty God. He's going to be, but, but he will also be our, the Prince of Peace. Isn't he going to bring peace? But at this moment, Jesus confuses them by saying, by saying, did you suppose that I came to grant peace on the earth? No, I tell you rather, but division. For now on, from now, from now on, five members in one household will be divided. Three against two. And two against three. They will be divided. Father against son. And son against father. Mother against daughter. And daughter against mother. Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Okay, let's stop there for a moment. Jesus is saying, I'm not coming to bring peace the way you think I'm going to bring it. Now later, he explains that he will bring global peace and the prophets and the apostles affirm that when he comes back, he will set up his kingdom and bring peace. Actual world peace. But the first peace that he wants to bring is between us and God. But we each have to make a choice. Are we going to say yes to that offer of salvation or are we going to say, no, I don't want that? And that is going to divide families. It's going to divide friends and neighbors. It, it is. That's Jesus saying, I'm being honest. If you choose me, some people in your family might say, I don't want anything to do with you because I don't want anything to do with Jesus. And that will be division. Jesus isn't trying to divide a family, but he is trying to save family members. And some will say yes, and in some cases, some will say no. And Jesus, because he loved people, wanted to tell them, you need to know ahead of time this could happen. In fact, it will. But then he continues, and he says, now listen. When you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, hey, a shower's coming. And so it turns out to be. And when you see a south wind blowing, you say, hey, it's going to be a hot day. And it turns out that way. Right now, uh, uh, three of our four sons are back in Israel living right now, and uh, we'll be there soon. But there's what they're calling, the media is calling this, the unsaved media, an apocalyptic heat wave. That's how bad. They're telling people, don't go to the national parks. They're shutting the parks down because it's so hot. And it's because the south winds... Uh, the east winds are blowing and they're bringing heat, intense heat off the desert. And uh, people are not happy. People like to watch the Weather Channel. Maybe you're one of them. 
And, you know, oh, what's going to happen? And, the, and Jesus is saying, look, you, you watch the Weather Channel. You know what's going to happen in tomorrow's forecast. You hypocrites, he says, you know how to analyze the earth and sky, but why do you not analyze this present time? One of the things Jesus wants us to do is watch current events and understand it from a biblical perspective, to analyze the events that we see playing out in front of us from an understanding of scripture. And when we do that, we can understand better what the enemies of God are doing and what God himself is doing. And it it helps us see what our role is. So that's sort of the context of this discussion. And, you know, the Bible, I often talk about how if you only look at the world through uh, economic lenses, or you only look at the world through political or geopolitical lenses, you really can't see in three dimensions. Um, you, in addition to seeing things in economic and geopolitical terms, we also need to look at, at, the, at world events through what I call the third lens, the lens of scripture. It doesn't mean we're going to see everything perfectly every time, but when we see what's happening in our world through, through the lenses of the scriptures, of what God says will happen, certain basic principles, it helps us see that God is sovereign, he is in charge, and many of the things that are happening are things that he told us would happen. Now, in that context, I'd like to talk about Israel, Iran, and ISIS uh, What's, what's next? What's, what's happening now and, and where are we going from here? We, as, you, as many of you know, uh, Lynn and our four sons moved to Israel just a year ago uh, next week. <laughs> and uh, in fact, this was the last event I believe that we did here in the United States, um, uh, this uh, fundraiser. Uh, and then we packed up and we moved our family to Israel. Uh, it's part of what Israelis call making Aliyah. It means the process of emigrating to the state of Israel and becoming citizens. Now, uh, Lynn and I are citizens. Our sons are on the track to become citizens. Uh, we're dual citizens, which means we're both full U.S. citizens and we're full Israeli citizens. So that means we get to vote twice. Uh, it's like living in Chicago. So that's, um, that's been good. Um, we got to uh, you know, vote in uh, this spring's uh, big national elections in Israel. And so that's been interesting. But it's, been a, it's been a wonderful, interesting, fascinating, and very, very challenging year. Um, many of you know that last summer at this time there was a war going on. Uh, 4,538 rockets and missiles were being fired at the new country we were heading to. Um, the Lord was very gracious. We didn't have any uh, significant problems. Um, and, you know, we're learning Hebrew and we're trying to, to learn to live in an entirely new society, far away from family and friends and Chipotle and all the things that we love and particularly that our boys love. But I'll tell you, um, you can know about a country and you can pray for a country and you can visit a country, but it's different when you become a citizen of that country. Now, my mom's side of the family are daughters of the American Revolution. They haven't been immigrants in like 250 years or something. So not a lot of experience on that side with immigration. My father's side of the family um, 
uh, is Russian Jewish. They came in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, my father is a first generation uh, American. He and his brother born here in the United States, in Brooklyn, where every good Jewish family you know, set up shop when they immigrated to the United States. And uh, so I don't know that any of us really ever expected that God was gonna take us on this type of journey, kind of getting into the flow, as it were, of what Bible prophecy says. Bible prophecy says that in the end of days, Israel's gonna be reborn as a country, the Jews are gonna move back to the land of Israel, they're going to make the deserts bloom. They're going to rebuild the ancient ruins. And there's going to be wars and rumors of wars and persecution and traumas in the region as this all happens. Well, I look at the situation. I go, check, 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 check. I mean, it's happening. It's playing out just like the scripture said. The scriptures that were written 2,000 and 2,500 years ago, they're coming true now. And in some small little way, we are being drawn by God into that story. Now, one of the things that's challenging and interesting, but challenging about now living as a citizen in Israel is you, you just see things differently, right? Things that you saw from a distance, you now have new data and it, and it takes on new meaning. Uh, for example, I know that Israel is a small country. I get it, right? It's about the size of New Jersey. Jersey is the state that Lynn grew up in. Um, and so I know the dimensions of Jersey pretty well. And so, you know, I, I got that. It's small. We've been there numerous times as a family. But it, but it never feels quite so small as to when you realize, oh, you're saying that 90 minutes north of our apartment is 100,000 missiles aimed at us by radical Iranian-backed Hezbollah? And that's 90 minutes north? Oh, okay. And two hours, maybe two and a half hours east of us is um, genocidal ISIS-controlled Syria? Wow, okay. Well, that's what, like from here to Colorado Springs? Imagine if Colorado Springs was filled with people trying to chop people's heads off. Thank God they're not. Uh, but, uh, you know, just what if? That, that feels close, especially if you live in Colorado Springs. But, I mean, if you, if you lived... <laughs> Here on the front range in this area outside of Denver, you think that's too close for people that are genocidal to be around. Um, if you go south, and two, two and a half hours south is uh, Hamas-controlled Gaza. And then, you know, you keep going eastward and you've got um, Iraq controlled by, northern Iraq controlled by ISIS, and you've, got, and you've got Iran. So everything takes on a very different feel when it's now your own little neighborhood, and you're trying to imagine, wow. Now, we don't try to live that way every day, but, but since this is what I think about, this is what I write about, uh, I keep at, wait, you know, I sort of half expecting my sons to come up to me and say, Dad, do you even read your own books? Do you know <laughs> what's happening in this region and what the Bible says is going to happen? I mean, come on. It hasn't happened yet. I, I, I suspect it will. Now, in January, I was, uh, I was back here in the States. Uh, we were launching my new uh, political thriller, The Third Target. Some of you may know that it's a book about a New York Times reporter who hears a rumor that ISIS, the Islamic State, uh, known in Arabic as Daesh, they, that they are, uh, in the novel, the reporter hears that ISIS or Daesh has captured chemical weapons in Syria and they're planning a genocidal attack, and he doesn't know if it's true or what the target might be. So he and his colleagues sneak into Syria. 
And at, in the course of the book, the reporter is trying to figure out, A, does, does ISIS really have these genocidal weapons? And second, if they do, what is, what is the objective? We know in real life that uh, ISIS is trying to bring down the government of Iraq and the government of Syria. So the question in the book is, what's the next target? What's the third target? So I came back to the United States and we launched um, a national, um, you know, um, book tour for the third target. Well, during that tour, I got a text from Lynn, my wife, with a hello and a photo of our sons. It had snowed up in the north of Israel, and they had all decided to go up to the highest mountain in the upper corner of Israel um, called Mount Hermon, and they wanted to go snowboarding. Well, that's fine until you realize that if you, if you go down the wrong side of that mountain, <laughs> you're in Syria in, in the Civil War. And if you slide, you know, if you snowboard down the wrong way on the other side, then you're in Hezbollah-controlled Lebanon. Now, they, they, they went the right direction. Everything was good. They looked cheerful. But I, I remember thinking half a world away when I was looking at this, that A, you know, I had these multiple thoughts. I'm encouraged that Lynn's adventurous enough to take the kids up there. B, there's snow in Israel. I mean, that it doesn't always happen, but it does occasionally, and that was fun. And they looked happy, and they looked healthy, and they hadn't broken any bones or anything. But, oh my gosh, they are, they are snowboarding about five miles from ISIS. Does that seem right to you? I mean, <laughs> um, this is our new world. And uh, things are close, and, and, the, and, the, and the darkness is falling, and evil is spreading, metastasizing like a cancer, and, uh, and, that's, and people talk about it. Um, not every moment of every day, but it's, you know, it's hard to miss. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit more, more about ISIS in a moment, but I want to start with, uh, so I wanted to give this understanding of what's happening in Israel a little bit from, just from our personal angle, but I want to talk about Iran. Because this uh, nuclear deal uh, that's just been agreed to, negotiated uh, through and then agreed to by the president and the, uh, you know, these uh, European uh, powers, um, European and Asian powers, uh, it's problematic, to say the least. Let me put it this way. Um, I've read through the 159-page deal, and... One of the reasons I wanted to focus on it tonight was because I think it's important that we really understand the details, not the rhetoric, but what, is the, what does the deal actually say? What, what were we told the deal was going to say? And what does it actually say? And, and what does that mean? Uh, this is going to be the big topic, um, certainly in the Middle East. And um, you know, as if ISIS wasn't enough to contend with, um, you've got this. And you've got two entirely... Uh, you know, diametrically opposed camps as to is this a, a great deal that is going to make things better and, 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 and usher in a new peaceful, secure relationship with the Islamic Republic of Iran or is this you know, the deal from the devil and the, the, the two camps are beginning to form and there are leaders of both camps and you're beginning to see people in Congress and around the country and around the world the more they hear they're breaking one way or the other so I wanted to walk through uh, this, you know, as I said, I've, I've read through the entire deal, and I've talked to numerous experts, Middle East experts, uh, former CIA directors, 
I've studied um, many of the uh, reports that different think tanks and th so forth have, have, have come together. And I wanted to say right up front that I did a 17-page analysis, which I just posted yesterday uh, on my blog. So if you went to joelrosenberg.com, um, you just go to the blog and you'll find um, links there to the full 17 pages and you can print them out and you can study them. It's all endnoted so you can, you know, you can test whether I'm really telling the truth. This is important that we deal in facts. And um, I'm going to be making some commentary as we go tonight, um, but for the most part, um, you know, the, the facts are very straightforward uh, in the document. I do draw some conclusions. I want to say uh, at this point that I, I, I'm, I'm I'm not trying to make a partisan point. Uh, there are disagreements on both sides. There are Democrats who agree with this decision. There are Democrats that don't agree with this deal. Um, I don't know currently of Republicans who, are, who support it, uh, at least in Congress, but there, there must be Republicans in the, in the country that, that do. But I, I'm only gonna try to walk you through the facts and I'm not trying to make a partisan point. But there are some partisan players in the, in the mix, so I'm just trying to say that up front as we analyze what's happening. Uh, I just want to be uh, clear about that. And again, we'll take your questions in the second half of the evening, and I, and I hope you have some. Okay, let me start with what were we promised? What, what did our leaders tell us that the deal would either contain or not contain so we can judge the deal first against that standard? Okay, so here's an example. Um, on October 22nd, 2012, uh, President Obama said, quote, the deal we'll accept um, from Iran is that they end their nuclear program. It's very straightforward. We'll get to that. Um, I'm not going to give the dates on every single one. Again, it, all of this is detailed in, in the document. But um, the president said, uh, again, in December of 2013, I want to be very clear. There's nothing in this agreement or document, and this was the first draft of the agreement, that grants Iran a right to enrich uranium. As you know, you need to take uh, this element, uranium, and, 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 and enrich it in machines called centrifuges to purify it um, to about 90% purity. That's military-grade, bomb-grade material. So, the president said, listen, there's nothing that we're negotiating, there's nothing in these documents that say that Iran has a right to enrich uranium. Let me stop there. Why is this important? There are 17 countries in the world that have peaceful civilian nuclear power, uh, but they do not enrich their own uranium. In other words, they buy enriched uranium from countries, uh, from just a handful of countries, including the United States, that, uh, that already have um, in uranium enrichment. It's very expensive uh, to, you know, to build these types of um, enrichment facilities and other countries don't need that. All they need is to buy, in a sense rent, um, fuel rods to put in their nuclear reactors and then their power plants run and then as, they, as those ro fuel rods begin to you know, sort of expire or like, uh, like a battery you know, they're, they're being drawn down, then they call and they say, hey, we're, we need some new ones. So Somebody brings new ones and removes the old ones, and that's how it works. So while I Iran, it's, uh, everybody is saying, look, you have a right to have uh, civilian peaceful nuclear power. 
I mean, it seems a little odd to many people that they're sitting on an ocean of oil and gas, but still, you have a right to go with nuclear power, electricity, if you, if you want it. But, but, nobody, but the international law says that not every country has the right to, to enrich it, okay? It's limited to just a few powers to keep it things safe so that you don't turn that process into the process of making nuclear weapons. Okay? So the president said, I want to be very clear, there's nothing in this agreement or document that grants Iran a right to enrich. We've been very clear that given its past behavior and given existing UN resolutions and previous violations by Iran of its international obligations, we do not recognize such a right. Okay? So that was part of his explanation to the country don't worry, we're not giving Iran some formal right to go down this road. Uh, Energy Secretary uh, Ernest Moniz uh, said earlier this year in April, quote, we expect to have anywhere, anytime access to Iran's nuclear facilities for inspection. This was a critical element. If you know, what if Iran could secretly be building a bomb or enriching uranium to military grade and we, and we don't know about it, don't we, shouldn't we have the right as part of whatever deal we might sign with them to pop in and, you know, check and see if they cleaned up their room, you know, like we would do with our kids. I mean, you need to be able to see what's happening and make sure everything's on the... Uh, up and up. Now, the term anywhere, anytime access has then been bandied about through the administration. Uh, uh, the Deputy National Security Advisor, and many people have used it. Anywhere, anytime. That would provide a, a, a sense of safety that if, you, if, if some military base might be developing something, you can go check. If some little, you know, small nuclear facility, pop in and check. If you suspected something, if you had intelligence, if an informant told you, hey, I think they're doing something military-related with a nuclear program over here, you could pop in anywhere, anytime. Okay? Now, the president then said in, in December of 2013, as the process was really building, quote, no deal is better than a bad deal. He said up front to us to alleviate people's concerns, listen, we're going to start this process, but if, we, if what we get is a bad deal, we won't take it. No deal is better than a bad deal. Uh, Secretary Clinton uh, herself had said, to get there to an agreement with Iran, we have to be tough, clear-eyed, and ready to walk away from the negotiating table and increase the pressure if need be. Why? Because no deal is better than a bad deal. Do we have the videotape that we can just run uh, with a few more clips like this? We have said no deal is better than a bad deal because a bad deal could actually make things less secure. No deal is better than a bad deal. 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 A bad deal is worse than no deal. A bad deal is worse than no deal. A bad deal is worse 
then no deal. A bad deal uh, is a bad deal and we won't take it. No deal is, is better than a bad deal. No deal is better than a bad deal. No deal is better than a bad deal. You know, no deal is better than a bad deal. No deal is better than a bad deal. That's very true, Mark. So I think they were clear. Uh, and that's important. Clarity in international policy and domestic policy. When you're speaking to the American people, you need to be clear. And if you tell people, listen, we're going to start this process. I know we're dealing with cheaters. I know we're dealing with the worst uh, regime to support terrorism in, in, you know, in the world. So there are concerns. There are risks. Our allies have concerns. The American people have concerns. Members of Congress have concerns. So listen, let's just be clear. No deal is better than a bad deal. That's what we were promised. This is what we got. The final deal does not end the Iranian nuclear program. Now the president says, well, that wasn't ever realistic. That was his, but that's what he told us what was going to happen. So that, you know, and that, and that happened. He made that promise during the presidential campaign, October 22nd, 2012. It was part of, please reelect me, but don't worry, Iran won't, we will end Iran's nuclear program. So the final deal does not end the program. And, I, and again, I, I read the 159 page deal, and, and it, believe me, and I encourage you to read it. You can find links on my website. Rather, the deal, which is known as the joint comprehensive plan of action, the JCPOA. There won't be a test, but I just want to tell you. Um, the deal uh, and, and its attendant UN Security Council Resolution 2231 preserves and makes legal Iran's illegal nuclear program and allows for its dramatic expansion. The deal does not reject the right of Iran to enrich uranium. Rather, the deal grants Iran the right to enrich uranium. Indeed, it allows Iran to continue research and development with faster and more sophisticated centrifuges. The deal does not provide for anywhere, anytime inspections. Rather, the deal gives Iran at least 24 days before inspectors can enter a nuclear facility that's suspected of violations. What's more, the deal does not allow inspectors to enter Iranian military bases and military facilities and does not allow the United States inspectors to be part of any inspections. The deal eventually removes all economic sanctions, all inspections, all monitors and all restrictions from Iran's nuclear program. Now, as you walk through the, the, the fine print, some, some elements sort of wind up in eight to eight and a half years, some take 10, some parts take 15 years. The point is by 15 years, there are no controls in, or sanctions or even observations of Iran's nuclear program. And, there are, and during that time, there'll be no uh, inspections of military facilities. So, for example, you could have a, a nuclear facility that's known and the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy uh, Administration or agency, they could send its, their inspectors into a bona fide Iranian nuclear facility and everything could be running just fine. 
But across the street, at a military base, they would have no access, and yet that's where the bomb could be created. We would have no way to tell. The deal also permits Iran to buy, sell, and transfer conventional weapons, ballistic missile technology, and sensitive dual-use technology that could be used to build nuclear weapons. That's the summary. Now let me give you some, uh, some specifics. Uh, we talked about uh, the president promising that the Iran would never be granted a right uh, for enrichment. Um, however, the, as I said, the, the, the deal does grant Iran the right to enrich uranium on its soil, a right that Iran insisted uh, that be affirmed by the international community from the beginning of the negotiations. As one Iranian diplomat told the Wall Street Journal, if the right to enrich isn't acknowledged, there won't be a deal. So that has been granted. Iran has the right to enrich, and they have all the equipment. Now, they do have to reduce their number of operational uh, centrifuges um, to about 6,000. Um, that's a lot. Uh, but they want 190,000. The Ayatollah Khamenei said just a few uh, months ago, our, our objective when, we're, when we get to that point is we want 190,000. So they're limited to 6,000 for the next 10 to 15 years, but after that, sky's the limit. Now, you say, now Joel, there's a, there's a risk here, right? You, you were a political consultant, right? A conservative Republican, so just to be honest, put your cards on the table, you know, you may have a political ax to grind. Okay, well, first of all, I, I was. Second of all, I was terrible at it. Uh, third of all, all my clients lost. So I just, I mean, it's true that I, that was my role, but I, I'm, a, I'm a failed political consultant. And like I said, every candidate I ever worked for lost or, or retired from politics or won, but many years after I was involved. So, <laughs> but it's true. But I want to quote you now from the Iranian president. How does he see the deal? That's important because you'd have to say that's not a conservative Republican or evangelical point of view, right? So how does he see the deal? And how is he talking about it with his own people? Well, they're, they're ecstatic in Tehran. And um, on July 14th, the day that the deal was uh, consummated, as it, as it were, um, he publicly boasted how Iran got everything it wanted from the deal and much, much more. Now, that's my paraphrase, but let's listen to his words in Persian. No, just kidding. I'll, I'll just read the, the, the translation. Quote, uh, and these are, these, are, uh, these are individual quotes um, from the speech, uh, so they're not all, um, they, they're all, they don't all string together, but they're all elements from the speech, and they're in bullet points in the memo, and it's all backed up, you can look at it. Quote, our objective, the Iranian objective, was to have the nuclear program um, and our sanctions lifted. They want to keep the program, the president said we're going to end it, and they want the sanctions lifted. That makes sense from their perspective. Quote, at first they, the international community, wanted us to have only 100 centrifuges, but now we will have 6,000. They wanted restrictions of 25 years, now it's eight. First they said that we could only have IR1 centrifuges, sort of an older model. Now we can have IR6, 7, and 8 advanced centrifuges. At first they said our heavy water plant at 
Iraq had to be dismantled. But now it will remain with heavy water under certain conditions. At first, they said that the underground hardened nuclear facility at Fordow had to be closed. Now we will have a thousand centrifuges there. In the future, when United Nations Security Council comes with a new resolution, all six of their previous resolutions will be lifted. Let me just note on the side, those six resolutions say repeatedly and in various ways that Iran's current program is illegal. But through this, it all becomes legal. Continuing with the Iranian President Khamenei's, uh, 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 oh, I'm sorry, Rouhani, Iranian President Rouhani's uh, uh, speech. Honorable Iranian nationals, he says, all sanctions, including on missiles, will be lifted on the days of implementation. Not suspended, lifted, he said. That's his, that's his quote. Quote, today is the end of oppressive sanctions. The chain of sanctions is broken, he said. Quote, today people in Lebanon and Palestine are happy because Zionists have tried to block this deal but failed. And then he ends, oh great nation of Iran, this is the beginning of a new movement, I tell you. Now, the editorial board of the Washington Post, again, not stacked with evangelicals, conservatives, or Republicans. So, you know, I don't always agree with them, but I'm just going to quote you. What is their perspective on the Iran deal? The headline of their editorial reads, Obama's Iran deal falls far short of his own goals. That's the Washington Post. We call it the Washington Compost in, in D.C., but whatever. It's <laughs> just so there's a little, you know. Quote, th th these are quotes, all of them directly from the, from the newspaper. None of Iran's nuclear facilities, including the four-doe center buried under a mountain, will be closed. None of them. Not one of the country's 19,000 centrifuges will be dismantled. Tehran's existing stockpile of enriched uranium will be reduced, but not necessarily shipped out of the country. In effect, Iran's nuclear infrastructure will remain intact, though some of it will be mothballed for 10 years. When the accord lapses, the Islamic Republic will instantly become a threshold nuclear state, end quote, meaning they will be able to go to 190,000 centrifuges, they will have all this technology, all the facilities, none of it has to be destroyed or dismantled, and, and, and if they don't cheat, they'll be ready to move very rapidly towards the bomb. That if they don't cheat. Back to the post. The proposed accord will provide Iran a huge economic boost that will allow it to wage more aggressively the wars it is already fighting or sponsoring across the region. And the last quote from the Washington Post editorial, the agreement is based on a theoretical benchmark that Iran would need at least a year to produce fissile material sufficient for a weapon compared to two months or less right now. Meaning when you make all these concessions and give Iran all these benefits, in the end, you will have moved them from having, they're right now, two months away from being able to whip together a bomb if they wanted to, this will, the whole deal, all this effort and all these giveaways will expand that window to a year. That's not that much time when you live in Israel. <laughs> now, again, uh, the president said that there'd be all kinds of verification and, you know, the, the toughest or most robust investigations and inspection process, you know, his cabinet and all these advisors said anywhere, anytime. 
Well, it doesn't. I mean, again, there's up to 24 days that Iran has before um, it would have to uh, sh uh, let the inspectors in. This bothered me, I have to say. Secretary Kerry now says he has never heard of the concept of anywhere, anytime inspections. No, I, I know I'm a fiction writer. I get that. But I, I, I am not making this up. Let me, let me just quote it to you. In an interview with CBS's Face the Nation, this I'm quoting directly from uh, uh, this article, uh, on Face the Nation, Kerry argued that having any time, anywhere access to all of Iran's nuclear sites was, quote, not on the table. And a term, quote, I never heard in the four years that we were negotiating. Though as the host of Face the Nation, John Dickerson pointed out, Deputy National Security Advisor Ben Rhodes had said in April that the international community would have, quote, anywhere, anytime, 24-7 access, unquote. Quote, back to Kerry. This is a term that, honestly, I've never heard in the four years that we were negotiating. It wasn't on the table. There's no such thing in arms control as anywhere, anytime. There isn't any nation in the world, none that has an anytime, anywhere model. What about the military? All right, you know, so we go on. There are also side deals. Uh, there are deals that the uh, international community made with Iran on the side that are secret. Uh, I met with a congressman this week who has seen, read those. He says, Joel, let me just say, I can't say anything about it, but I can just tell you, your confidence will not be increased in the deal if you could read these. That's what he said. Now, one of the deals that we know of now the president himself is not allowed to see. Kerry has not seen it. It's a deal made between the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, and Iran directly. And we're not allowed to see it. Not the president of the United States that's telling us that don't worry, it's all good. Not the secretary of state that said no deal is better than a bad deal. Not the Congress. None of, no American citizen is allowed to see this deal. Let me wrap up because the list goes on and on. You've got 17 pages uh, that you can pour over. And then if, if, you, if you want to um, really do a good job, you can read the 159-page uh, document. It's, uh, it's interesting. But let me just say um, the f a couple other f just factoids that you can just sort of, as you process this deal. The final deal will provide Iran more cash than all of U.S. aid provided to Israel since 1948. Here's the quote from the news story that said it. The Iran deal will provide Iran with a cash windfall as sanctions are eased and assets, Iranian assets, are unfrozen and given back to Iran. The total amount is estimated to be as high as $150 billion. If so, the Iran deal would give more cash to Iran than the 124 billion that the U.S. has given in total aid to Israel since 1948. Three last points. First, the final Iran deal crosses President Obama's own red lines. It does not end the Iran nuclear program as the administration promised. It does not provide for anywhere, anytime inspections as the administration promised. It grants Iran a right to enrich uranium despite years of Iran's duplicitous 
and illegal nuclear activity despite President Obama's promise not to grant such a right. So that's the first thing. By his own standard, it doesn't meet that standard. Second, the final Iran deal does not block Iran's path to build and deploy nuclear weapons and the missiles to deliver them. To the contrary, it puts Iran on the legal path to building and deploying the bomb in eight to 10 years, or at least by 15 years, or much sooner if the Iranian regime decides to cheat. Okay? This is why Prime Minister Netanyahu in Israel is saying, there's, rather than cutting off all the paths, it gives Iran two paths. One is to keep the deal and in 10 to 15 years build the bomb, or to say you're gonna keep the deal and cheat and build the bomb in two months or a year from now, or at any time that the, the, the uh, Iranians decide. Two quotes by top experts. The, uh, the, this quote is from Dennis Ross. Dennis Ross was on the National Security Council of the Obama administration, a senior advisor to the president on Iran issues. Okay, so this is, he's, you know, he left the administration, but this is his own, the president's own senior advisor on Iran issues said this, quote, the deal would essentially legitimize Iran as a threshold nuclear state after the sunset, after the 15 years are up. There are no clear mechanisms that would remain after the sunset to ensure that Iran adheres to the Nuclear Proliferation Treaty from years ago and is unable to develop nuclear weapons capability. This is the president's own former top senior advisor on Iran says, this, as soon as this deal is over, there's no way to stop them from getting the bomb. That's from a friend of the president. Now, according to the uh, Washington Institute for Near East Policy, arguably the leading think tank uh, research center in Washington on these Middle East issues, quote, the nuclear accord does not block Iran's path to the bomb. At best, it may defer the problem for an indeterminate amount of time. Third, uh, the final Iran deal uh, rewards the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism, a regime that has repeatedly attacked its neighbors, a regime that has repeatedly called for the annihilation of not just Israel, but the United States as well, and a regime that has repeatedly deceived the international community and repeatedly violated international law with regards to its nuclear program. This deal rewards that state with more than $150 billion in cash and business contracts, which will embolden them and provide more resources for international terrorism and for the spreading of their Islamic revolution. Now in just about two minutes, we're gonna take a little bit of break, but I wanna just uh, shift now from that um, analysis of Iran, just to mention a few things about ISIS. You know, when I was here a year ago, uh, my, my, my fictional account of, of ISIS rising had not yet come out, right? So we were, we were still about four or five months away from the third target. But, and, and many Americans were just beginning to learn about the threat of the Islamic State or ISIS. ISIS had just taken over Mosul, the, the most major large city in northern Iraq. Uh, a city that American forces and allied forces had fought very hard and lost a lot of blood and treasure uh, to, to, to rescue from Saddam Hussein's people and from, uh, from Al-Qaeda. Where are we today? 
Well, there are now there are 20 to 30,000 foreign fighters that have poured into Syria and uh, northern Iraq to fight on behalf of Daesh or ISIS. More than four, at least 47, but I think more at this point, at least 47 U.S. residents, people who live here in the United States, have been arrested over the past year alone for working with ISIS and plotting attacks against Americans. 47. Uh, in the spring, the FBI director said that there were ISIS investigations in 49 states. Today, that's 50 states. The FBI is actively investigating individuals and possible cells that are linking up with ISIS, preparing to attack us, in all 50 states. The incoming or proposed, let's say, uh, commander of the Marines, uh, Lieutenant General Robert Neller, just said a couple of days ago, after one year of Allied bombing against ISIS, quote, I believe they are in a stalemate right now. In other words, he was trying to question, have we made progress? Are we, are we pushing ISIS back? No, we're in a stalemate. ISIS is in a stalemate with the world's superpower and our allies. We have not made any progress, according to the incoming commander of the Marines. Former CIA director John McLaughlin said that the idea that ISIS could become a functioning state with working passports and airports and all the things that come with a state is not inconceivable. And Senator John McCain, uh, just uh, two days, two, three days ago, said, quote, ISIS is winning, unquote. They, in May, ISIS captured Ramadi, which is a city just 70 miles from Baghdad. So, Israel, Iran, and ISIS. What's next? It doesn't look good from a human perspective. Uh, evil is on the move. The forces of freedom are in retreat. And what we'll pick up as my, uh, just an opening thought on the other side, and then we'll go to your questions. And I hope, again, I hope you're asking questions. If you don't have any, I'll just make some up. But uh, we're definitely going to talk about the hope. But I also want to draw just a few, just one or two conclusions or observations from what's happening and where this could go uh, in the not too distant future. Again, if everyone would just take their seats, and I'm glad to see there's some fellowship going on and people chatting and. Grateful for all of you that came up just to say hi to me for a moment. We'll be signing books here and, uh, and saying hi uh, when the event is through. Uh, we're going to do about a half an hour of questions. So if you've got questions, you can line up at either of these two microphones. And um, you provide the Q, and I'll do my best with the A. Uh, now, my dad says try to give shorter answers. I will do that. However, often in the past, you guys have asked really, you know, doctoral dissertation type questions and they're hard to give a yes or no or one sentence answer, but I will try. Now, I, I mentioned that as we begin, I want to just make a couple observations. Because tonight's talk was entitled Israel, Iran, and ISIS, what's next? Uh, let me just make a few uh, observations. You can see that um, what I've just laid out uh, from my perspective uh, is emerging as one of the most dangerous moments 
uh, for all the people of the Middle East, not just Israel, uh, but for Sunni Arab people living throughout the region, and Shias who don't agree with um, you know, where Iran and, and their allies are heading. It's a very dangerous moment. It's a dangerous moment for the United States because um, Iran has been our most uh, serious enemy since the end of the Cold War. Iraq was a major enemy as well, so it was, they vie uh, for um, who gets that title. But I'm concerned at, at numerous levels because um, somebody was asking me, well, well, how do we stop it? So I want to start, my observation is going to start with a question that I'm going to take first from somebody who asked it just a moment ago. How do we stop this? And let me just say that um, there, we're in the middle of a 60-day a review period for Congress. Members of Congress have an opportunity to, to read all the documentation that has been made available to them, except for the secret agreement that nobody gets to read. And there are a number of people saying, listen, we're not gonna, we're certainly not gonna vote yes if we can't read everything, because how do we know that there's not some loophole in that? For example, uh, there, there is a published rumor, but I mean, it seems to have numerous sources for a major publication to write it, that the, that the secret deal is that Iran will be able to do its own testing, provide or provide its own soil samples of suspected sites and then give those samples to the IAEA. Now, again, I'm a fiction writer. I, I wouldn't even have thought of making that up. Right? You can't, I can't verify that it's true, but I couldn't even think of that as a possibility. That would be like you know, Lance Armstrong, you know, providing his own blood samples when he wants to, you know, to the drug testers. It just, it doesn't make sense. But there's a constitutional issue here. Um, Article 2, Section 2, Clause 2 of the United States Constitution states, quote, the president shall have power uh, by and with the advice and consent of the Senate to make treaties provided that two-thirds of the senators present concur, unquote. In other words, if you create an international treaty, you submit it to the Senate, and two-thirds of the senators have to vote yes, and then it becomes binding American law, right? In this case, with 100 senators, you need 67 votes. The president has not submitted this as an international treaty. And... This is a mistake. This is, this is a circumventing of the Constitution. The Constitution's clear. You heard it in one sentence. Uh, so the president is doing it. Now, he could, there, there's another provision, you know, sometimes treaties are very big. So you have other little agreements that can be handled as, quote, binding executive agreements. But the president has not submitted this to Congress as a binding executive agreement. That would be a simple majority, 51 votes would pass it. So he hasn't done that either. Instead, the president is handling the final Iran deal with our worst enemy as, quote, a non-binding executive agreement, which does not require congressional approval. Now you say, no, come on, Joel. Something this serious, you're telling me this is going to be non-binding? Prove that to me. Let me quote Secretary Kerry directly. Quote, we've been clear from the beginning 
we are not negotiating a, quote, legally binding plan, unquote. That's the Secretary of State telling us this whole deal, 159 pages plus the side agreements, including the, the clandestine ones, is not binding. If it's not binding on us, how is it binding on them? So we're going to need to see the Congress uh, handle this as a treaty. They're not currently, and uh, we can get into that more detail if you want. But prayer and uh, speaking out and being informed and speaking out. Um, and then, you know, the whole debate process that you missed tonight, there's a process to pick somebody else at some point. Um, I'm not going to comment on that tonight, um, but... Uh, you know, I'm not sure what to say beyond the, you know, for the next 18 months. Okay, that being said, let's start here. In light of the new nuclear deal, ISIS versus Iran, which would be a, which do you view as a larger critical threat immediately versus long term, both here at home in America, in America as well as worldwide? That's a great question, and my answer is yes. Okay, next. Uh, <laughs> He wants me to keep it short. You asked me, that's a huge question, but it's a great question. Uh, very insightful. Look, I would say that the, the, the threat that we face is now uh, Iran, ISIS, Hamas, Al-Qaeda, Hezbollah, Muslim Brotherhood, Taliban. So you really need to put this in, der, in a big picture. It's radical Islam. That's the threat. Okay? But it's not just radical Islam. You need to take all the groups I just mentioned and you divide them into two groups. Radical Islam is the way we've thought for the last, you know, 15 years or so. Um, th that's the threat. Like, that's Al-Qaeda, it's Taliban, it's Muslim Brotherhood, it's Hamas. These are groups, they're Muslims, they're radical Muslims, and they believe in using terrorism to drive Jews, Christians, American forces, whatever they think is important, uh, the forces of imperialism, what have you, out of the region. Okay? That's... That's radical Islam. They're, they're trying to use violence to drive us out. Israel, Jews, Muslims they don't agree with, Christians, and West. That's radical Islam. But there's a new form that's even more dangerous than radical Islam. Now, the president won't, won't concede that radical Islam is a threat. He won't use the term. And I would argue that you cannot defeat an enemy that you cannot define or that you will not define. But it's not just radical Islam, it's apocalyptic Islam. And very short, that is, you're Muslim, and you're radical, you want to use violence, but you also believe that we are living in the end of days. You have an eschatology, or an end times theology. And both Iran and ISIS have it, have one. They have an end times belief. They believe the Messiah is coming at any moment, that the kingdom, or the caliphate of Islam will take over the world, very soon, and the way to hasten or accelerate the arrival and establishment of this Mahdi or 12th Imam or Islamic Messiah is to annihilate two countries, Israel, which they call the Little Satan, and the United States, which they call the Great Satan. Now, both Iran's leaders and ISIS leaders are being driven by this belief that this is any moment, and therefore they have to take action. There's one key difference between the two of them. The Iranians believe that first you build nuclear weapons so that you're ready to commit genocide when the Messiah either tells you or when he comes. So you wait until you have the nuclear weaponry. 
ISIS believes, no, you do not wait. You establish the caliphate and you start killing everybody in your way now to hasten his coming. So what, so it's a hard answer. It's a hard thing to answer quickly because it's not just Iran and ISIS. Iran and ISIS are in a category together of apocalyptic Islam and the rest are in a category of danger of radical Islam. And this, these are still small subsets of Islam, but they're the ones building nuclear weapons and cutting people's heads off so that you know, we have to deal with that. Is that helpful? Okay. Uh, <laughs> that's the short version. Okay. Yes. Yeah, I've heard um, from multiple sources, political and uh, media, they've said that Obama has been um, committed, determined to make Iran a, ma a major player in the Middle East. But I've heard nobody say why. And uh, the one person I, I heard talking about this on the radio one day said he was just baffled by it. Do you have any thoughts about what's the motivator? No. In doing that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying. Uh, you know, I had this conversation with some, uh, some friends and my, and my father last night. I choose not to deal with motivation because I can't really know. All, you know and Jesus talks about you will know a, the fruit by, you know, you know the tree by its fruits. I'm watching and, I can, and I've got very close friends and family that would say this is the analysis, this is why he's doing what he's doing. And others would say, no, I, I see that data, but I would conclude as this. But I think it's fair to say that he has made some comments to say that he, he seems to believe that if you engage Iran, if you pull them into the international community, that you can do what Nixon did when he drew China out of isolation and into a relationship with the United States. And Nixon's bet paid off. Now, over time, China's going to be a threat. It's certainly a challenge now, but there's a difference. So, so the last 40 some years, China has engaged in a, in, a, in a commercial way and they haven't you know, fired nuclear weapons at anybody, so okay, that's, that's good. So Nixon's deal seems to work. There's a difference though, and here's the heart of it. The heart of it is that a, when you're dealing with a Soviet leader, like Reagan negotiated with the Soviets at arms control, right? I'm not gonna trust. You know, or, or trust but verify, right? But when you're dealing with a Soviet leader or a Chinese leader, you're dealing with communists. Now, communists are atheists. And atheists are people who don't believe that there's an afterlife, right? There's no God. So if you convince them that if they nuke you, you'll nuke them, and they'll be dead, and they can't take their money and their power and their mistresses with them, you can often help an atheist say, I don't want to go that far. That's what happened with both countries. When you're dealing with someone who believes that martyrdom is an incentive, not a problem, then you've got a different situation. When you believe that, the, that, that there is an afterlife, that there is a God, his name is Allah, and that if you die as a martyr for Allah, that you will have, as a man, 70 or 72 virgins waiting for you, this is not a disincentive. <laughs> uh, so 
That's a problem. And if you also believe, if you're, that's the radical version. If you're in the apocalyptic camp, you believe that the Messiah is coming at any moment. Therefore, if you make a deal with the devil and give up what you think the Messiah is telling you to do, that he'll arrive any moment and you'll be thrown into the lake of fire forever and ever and ever and ever. This is why I'm writing and speaking about the eschatology, the end times theology of these two states because our leaders don't see it. They're playing and their team, their advisor are playing by Cold War rules. We're not dealing with the Cold War. We're dealing with people who want to commit genocide and either are today or preparing to tomorrow. And that causes you to deal very differently at the negotiating table um, in theory. Okay, let's go over here. I uh, just noticed uh, on my iPad that uh, Senator Schumer has decided to vote against uh, the deal, being the, I guess, most important Jewish member of Congress, which uh, apparently is going to sway a lot of other people to vote against it. Right. Isn't he the incoming uh, minority leader? Uh, But I I guess the question is, what's what's the big deal when it's just going to go to Obama who will veto that? And... They don't believe there's enough votes to overturn his veto. Yeah. And then that was the same question. Why is he doing that kind of thing? The, the reason that's important is because it builds the case that the president is not going to be legally legitimate to move forward on the implementation of a deal that the American people are against, that Congress is against, that members of his own party at senior levels are against, and that he didn't submit as a treaty. Right? And if he doesn't submit it as a treaty, he will lose. And so that's why he's not, he, they, you know, I quoted Secretary Kerry, I'm, we're not going to do it this way. I, did, not, did I quote that? I think I did. So um, uh, maybe I quoted the other thing. Maybe I didn't quote that. Did I quote it? Okay, just want to make sure. Oh, I, I, I quoted him as saying, oh, sorry, that we're, we're not negotiating a legally binding plan. But no, but listen to this. Um, he was, he was asked during one of the congressional hearings, uh, for 228 years, uh, Secretary, the Constitution allowed treaties to pass with the advice and consent of 67 U.S. Senators. Why is it, this not considered a treaty? And he said, quote, well, Congressman, I've spent quite a few years trying to get treaties through the United States Senate, and it's become physically impossible. That's why. Because you can't pass it. That's, look, this is lawlessness. See, I didn't quote it, so it's important that I did quote it. Um, this is a problem, and I, you know, this is where we are right now. Very dangerous decisions are being made on our behalf as non-binding agreements when there's a clear constitutional path to do it. And uh, yeah, if they took the, Congress- the constitutional path and they passed it, and we all thought that's a terrible decision, well, in a democracy, too bad. You'll have to work to try to handle it a different way. But it's all being handled without the constitutional process. And so Schumer's defection is a huge deal. Yeah. Yes, sir. Very good. Mary Jo, Lynn, thank you for coming. God bless Ministry of Architecture. Amen. <laughs> Joel, thank you for taking my call. I've got a question <laughs> for you regarding... <laughs> uh, you mentioned ISIS, Iran, but you haven't elaborated on Israel and the threat on Israel. Yeah. Maybe even... I just read uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39. Um, 
what kind of what what comes into play with Israel and how they're going to deal with this and what kind of attack is there attack threat is there on Israel? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, there's a couple of things. First of all, there's two sets of Bible prophecies that that talk about the the coming judgment of Iran's leaders uh, in the last days of history. Uh, one of them is found in Ezekiel 38 and 39. The other is found in Jeremiah 49. These are two very specific sets of prophecies that say that fire is going to fall from heaven in a divine judgment of Iran's leaders and, and military in, quote, the last days. That's the phrase used in both passages. Uh, so I don't know whether the United States will, under, I, I'm sure under this president, we're not going to take military action, obviously, but would a, would a future president take action to, to neutralize the Iran nuclear threat? Would Israel? Somebody asked me, are we basically at DEFCON 1? I mean, are we, are we, it's something imminent. I don't know that. Um, and I would say that unless Israel thinks in the next 18 months that it has no choice, that there's something imminently dangerous, life-threatening to the state, I would suspect that Israel wouldn't take preemptive action until it saw who the next president is. If it's somebody they think has the experience and the worldview that would work with them and the Saudis and the Egyptians and the Jordanians and the Gulf states in this historic Israeli, Sunni Arab, American alliance to neutralize Iran, then that's a whole different story, right, than Israel doing it by itself. So only if Israel thought it was imminently about to be annihilated with a weapon that we don't currently know about, uh, I think you wouldn't see war in the next 18 months, but crazier things have happened. Um, so those, but, but the prophecies seem to indicate of divine judgment, at least Ezekiel 38, 39. Jeremiah 49 is, is suggests that there could be a, 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 a human attack. So we're just going to have to watch. Um, I don't have a clear-cut definitive answer, um, only that we know that Iran faces judgment. Which is why, I would note, we need to show love to the Iranian people. They are trapped under this regime. And they need to hear the gospel, as do the leaders of Iran, who are doing the trapping and the enslaving. They need to hear the gospel now, before the judgment comes. As do, do the people of Iraq and Syria and Israel and so forth. And I'll, go, I'll get to the Israel question in just a moment, because some very, very exciting things are happening spiritually in Israel. But, but when we say what next, from my perspective, you've got government needs to do its job. Romans 13, government wields a, doesn't wield a sword for nothing, Paul said. Its job is to protect us from evil. So government has its job, and so that's partly what I'm talking about right now. But then the church has our job. And our job is not to um, wait for the government to do the right thing, but to do the right thing in the kingdom that we live for the king that we serve. And to strengthen the persecuted church, pray for Pastor uh, Saeed Abedini and his family. Pastor Saeed is, you know, is imprisoned as a, as a Christian evangelical pastor in Iran. We're gonna pray for these people and share the gospel and try to at least let them hear the good news um, before judgment comes or before an American first strike or an Israeli first strike where people would die in the process. Okay. Let's go over here. Some of our more liberal friends have said things like, we have no one else to blame but ourselves for the way Iran feels towards us. 
specifically regarding the position that we took during the Iran-Iraq war and the fact that Iraq used weapons of mass destruction against Iran. How would you respond to that argument? Uh, Iran's leaders, uh, they hate us now. They've hated us before. They've hated the West since the seventh century. Uh, they have new reasons uh, to hate us, but they're, but they're not fundamentally different. They hate Jews, and they hate Christians, and they hate Muslims who don't agree with them, and they hate anybody that's an infidel, and they intend to annihilate all of them unless someone converts. So there, there is a mixed history. Um, you know, the United States under our CIA helped overthrow uh, an Iranian regime back in the 50s, uh, Mossadegh. It's a complicated history, okay? Um, but it doesn't justify genocide. And that's what they're planning. And knowing their history, it doesn't justify giving them a straight path to the bomb if they keep a deal and a straighter, faster path to the bomb if they cheat on the deal. It, it, that is, that's insane. This deal is diplomatic insanity. There's no other way to put it. And uh, that might not be so diplomatic, but I mean, at this point, you just have to call a spade a spade. And uh, there you go. So <laughs> thank you. Yes. My understanding is, is that we are called as Christians to be dual citizens, both mm -hmm. uh, of this world as well as of heaven. How do you see our responsibility through church leadership to equip us to, to engage as citizens of this world? I'm thinking along the lines of the fact that 50% of Christians do not vote even. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, I, I'm going to give you a very concise answer, and that is to read a book I wrote in 2012 called Implosion, Can America Recover from Her Economic and spiritual challenges in time. Uh, it's a nonfiction book, came out in 2012. You can get it in paperback now, and you can get it online on Kindle or whatever, Nook or audio. I walk through how much danger our country's in because of $18 trillion of debt with no end in sight, um, killing 57 million babies, and then tr selling and trafficking in their hearts and their lungs and their brains so that somebody can buy a Lamborghini. I didn't quote that because I didn't even know that, but this new parent, Planned Parenthood uh, undercover videos, you've got to see them. This is Dr. Mengele sitting and having a, a salad and a glass of wine talking about how can I sell, we can do it in a less crunchy procedure as we kill the baby so that you can have the lungs and the heart and the brain for your medical research for a small fee. This is. This is the Nazis. And we've killed 57 million babies. When you add to that a Supreme Court, five members who take an oath of office on the Bible and then say, yeah, we don't care about that. We're going to end 5,000 years of, of marriage with a stroke of our pen because we decided to. Add that and, and drugs and adultery and pornography and all of our sins. Like, look. Judgment is coming to our country. It, you cannot get out of it. 
the blood of 57 million babies is crying out from the ground, it's, and they're gonna get justice. The question is when? And so the simplest way to answer your question is please read that book. Yes, it's a couple days, a couple years out, of, there's new facts now, but okay, it's from 2012. And I, I walk through how much danger we're in and, and is there any hope? There is hope. Um, and I talk about the first great awakening, the second great awakening, the possibility of a third great awakening. And then I conclude with a chapter on what role in politics should we have? If we, if we do nothing, if we don't register, if we don't vote, if we don't participate, people who have the exact opposite values as us are gonna win. That's pretty obvious. But that doesn't mean everybody should get obsessed with politics. Being involved as a, as a citizen, as a steward of, of a system that you can make a difference if you, if you vote your people in, that you should, we need to be good stewards of that system. But we can't get obsessed with it. I say to some of my friends, look, you need to go through Fox Detox. Like, I, you know, bless your hearts, you're just a little all too, uh, you know, and I say that as somebody who was that myself. So I've gone through political detox. I'm out, I'm clean. Uh, this time of year I need a patch, admittedly. It's pretty good for me to be here doing this instead of watching the debates. I just, it, my track record, just so you know, that's not a normal thing for me to do. But I say that because that doesn't mean to disengage. It means to ask God, what is my role? And I, in that chapter, I walk through what are the different roles you could have what would, and what's God calling you to? Because when you stand before Jesus, you need to be able to answer, what did you do with the, the gifts that he gave you? Did you share the gospel? with everyone that you could, your family, your friends, your neighbors? Did you make disciples? Did you use your gift of freedom and liberty that most of the world doesn't have? Did you use it wisely? Or did you hide your candle under a bushel, right? Uh, or your money under a mattress? So that, that book, I think, will help you understand it in more detail than I can answer tonight. But thank you for the question. Uh, yes, sir. Hello, Joe. Hi. I was curious, what do you see, can you flesh out a little bit uh, the role of America as the end times do come upon us. Read, uh, read implosion. Same there thing. is no end time role. Okay. We are, we are not described. We are not defined. Uh, and you, when you, when people ask me, how could the United, you're saying the United States is not mentioned in Bible prophecy? Exactly. But aren't we the wealthiest, most powerful country in the face of the planet in the history of mankind? Yes, we are. Well, don't you believe, Joel, that we're in the end times? Yes, I do. Well, how can a country of this magnitude, power, influence, not be a player that's defined in the end times? The Bible is clear about Israel's role and Egypt's role and Iran and all, you know, all the countries in the region, plus others. How can the United States not be in there? And the short answer is, I don't know. So I decided to write a book about how I didn't know. <laughs> People bought it, what can I tell you? <laughs> Crazy country, no, no. Uh, I didn't know because the Bible doesn't say, but I walked through the, all the various scenarios. Uh, but I think what's, what's fairly clear to me is somehow, in some way, the United States is not a factor. We've either, we've either, we have either imploded economically, we've been attacked militarily and we're neutralized, uh, a whole other range, or we could be politically paralyzed, 
or we could be led by people who take us in the wrong direction. Those are just four. Um, and I would note on that, I just need to say, I had the opportunity, uh, I haven't said this publicly yet, but I'm gonna do it tonight. I had the opportunity to meet the uh, US ambassador to Israel a few months ago. And a mutual friend of ours uh, uh, invited me to, to come meet with him. And I gave him a copy of the third target. And uh, you know, he asked me questions about moving to Israel and so forth. And we had a very pleasant conversation. It was personal, it was friendly, it was cordial. More than cordial, it was warm. But I did say to him, listen, I, I, you know, since we're having this time together, and I, you know, we have not met before, I don't know when we'll get to see each other again. Um, I travel and speak to a lot of evangelicals around the United States. And I need to say to you, sir, that uh, there is a growing feeling that President Obama is preparing to divorce the state of Israel. He looked visibly shocked by that statement. I said, I say this with respect, but people, there's one thing to have tensions in a relationship, every alliance has that, but, 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 a, but a growing number of people, specifically evangelicals, but I think it's beyond that, think that the president is preparing to divorce Israel, to cut her loose. And I just wanna say that um, uh, I am praying for the president, I'm praying for you, sir, I'm praying for the administration. I don't have ill will or animosity, but the Bible is clear in Genesis 12, verses one through three, that those who bless Israel, I will bless, and those who curse Israel, I will curse. There is a consequence to abandoning Israel, to turning against her, there's a consequence. I'm not here to tell you how God's gonna play that out, but, but since you're the man right next to the president on Israel affairs, I, I just wanna tell you this and encourage you to consider it and process it and, and, and talk to him about it. I look at this document, 159 page document, and I have to say that, well, I can't say it definitively, but. I have a hard time not believing this is the certificate of divorce. I'm not saying that all the funding has been cut on that, but when you tell an ally, I, I really don't believe what you're telling me about your own safety, I don't really care. I'm telling you this deal will help you. And not just Israel, but all of our Arab allies are telling us, no, it won't. This is a mistake. We've been in this region a long time Please don't do this. Doesn't seem to care. Uh, it's not changing his mind. And uh, so that's, that's a huge issue. I, was, uh, I had the opportunity to attend uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu's speech to Congress um, a few months ago. And it was a, it was a very impressive speech. Uh, I say that as somebody who did work for him, but I, I, you know, again, he didn't win when I was around, so I don't have any particular influence with him or anything. I just say it was interesting to be in that room and to see the support that he had. But this is a, this is a, this is a very dangerous moment. And, and even though the American people are against this deal and it's growing, the polls are moving and, and, and Democrats are shifting and so forth, still a leader is responsible and we, that's our system. The leaders, we're, we're a republic. The leaders get to make the decision and the president gets to make decisions that affect us in small ways and in big ways. And this one is big. 
Um, we'll, we'll take a few more uh, questions, and I'm going to close tonight, just so you know where we're heading. I'm going to close with the good news, some really exciting things that are happening spiritually in Israel, just so you know that's where we're headed. We can take just a few more, and I'll try to give shorter answers, but you can't ask such good questions. Ask a yes or no <laughs> question, please. Uh, just, okay. Well, um, you just mentioned Netanyahu, and I've, I've read your book, uh, Israel at War. I, I enjoyed that book, and you had a really interesting discussion in there about your relationship with Netanyahu. And I was really, uh, I'm really impressed with him. And you, you talked about there's sort of like an Israeli scriptural spelling bee, and his son kind of won first place in the whole it's nation. It's a Bible quiz in Israel. Bi a Bible yeah. quiz. Right, uh, right. And, and how he reads the Bible with his son. I, I was really touched by that. And I'm just wondering now that you're living there and you're actually an Israeli citizen, have you continued that relationship? And I say all this as a political scientist. Uh, now that I know that there's Fox Detox, I'm, I'm vowing today that well, I will go and. <laughs> I'll go to in Walgreens small and I'll, doses, get, I'll get the patch. It's not a problem. Too. It's just if you're glued to it, going, oh, it's all terrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll get know, the patch too. That's good news. Uh, um, you know, let me be clear. Uh, I have maintained a, a, a good, strong, working, personal relationship with a number of, of uh, the Prime Minister's advisors and, and, and allies and so forth. Um, I don't have like an ongoing relationship with him. We haven't seen him since. Uh, we got there, um, so I don't have any inside track there. I pray for him all the time, and his family, and his team. I can't imagine the pressure that one would be under, any prime minister, somebody at least that I've met and worked for. Uh, it's unbearable. We feel that way, and we're believers. I don't know how you operate day to day in a spiritual and political and uh, you know, battle zone that is Jerusalem. Um, uh, absent, you know, uh, a, a deep and personal relationship with God. Um, we've seen Israeli kings and leaders in the Bible who walked with the Lord and God gave them great favor, even in very, very hard times. And then people who didn't, and they went through very hard times and it was horrible. And so uh, we, we just need to keep praying for every person in Israel, from the prime minister uh, to the street sweeper and up and down. And and, and, and back and forth, Arabs and Jews and other Gentiles that live there. Uh, um, and uh, the good news is hearts are opening. And so we'll get into that in just a moment. But I appreciate the question. Uh, okay, I'm going to take, I think, two more questions. Is that uh, fair? So whoever's here and then up here, and, and I apologize. And we'll, um, if, if it's a quick question in the, in the book line, I'll try to answer it. Otherwise, um, you know, you can email me. I'll do my best. Um, but thank you. Hi, Joel. Thank you for being here. This is a, not a yes or no question, but it's as <laughs> close as I can get. Uh, there are a couple things that I've heard that I'd just like you to either confirm or deny. One... I deny it. <laughs> <laughs> and you're quite... Oh, sorry. Well, well, it'd be helpful, helpful if you hear it first. But the okay, first one I've heard was that should Israel uh, launch a preemptive strike against Iran's nuclear sites, that there's a clause in this deal that the U.S. must support Iran. <laughs> the second thing I heard <laughs> was that um, if Congress were to reject this deal, that Iran would launch uh, missiles toward Tel Aviv. Can you comment on those two? What was the last part again? That, that Iran would launch missiles toward Tel Aviv. If? If, if uh, Congress rejects this deal. I see. Well... Uh, on the second one, um, I th no, if Congress rejects this deal, I think that 
that Iran will, will, will continue to try to persuade Europe and Asia to do business with them anyway and to sort of, you know, cut the Americans loose. Um, there's, Iran's got a lot, a, a lot riding on trying to bamboozle the world into doing this deal. So it doesn't want to quickly do something. And I don't think they have the bomb yet. I mean, I don't know this, but nobody that I know I've talked to two CIA directors, former Delta Force commander, various Israeli officials. I don't know anybody who thinks at this moment Iran has an operational nuclear warhead. Um, that would change. That would be a total game changer if they if they already have it. Uh, now, admittedly, I've written an entire novel series uh, that they that they, that an American president miscalculated and pressured Israel not to launch a preemptive strike. Let's keep negotiating, keep the sanctions, so forth, and Iran ended up getting eight or nine nuclear warheads, and Israel does launch a strike, and it's, uh, you know, challenging. Uh, so you can walk through that scenario with a, a series called the 12th Imam Tehran Initiative Damascus Countdown. So I don't know that they would launch immediately. Um, and Israel has rocket and missile defenses, which the United States has paid a lot of money to help, and I've seen it work over my head that saved my life so, and the lives of my friends. So... It's really a quite impressive system, but you know you don't want to test it when you don't have to. Your first question is uh, if if the United States or I mean if Israel attacked, does some provision in this deal make the United States required to defend Iran? And the answer is I don't know exactly, but but here's in the appendix to my 17-page paper on page 11. The question says, is the U.S. and our European allies required to defend Iranian nuclear facilities from Israeli sabotage or attack? So I, I deal with that in there. I'll say very quickly that Senator Marco Rubio asked this question of uh, Secretary Kerry because he says, Rubio speaking, quote, there's a provision, 10.2, that reads uh, that uh, cooperation, I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but basically... Uh, to strengthen Israel's, Iran's ability to protect against or respond to nuclear security threats, including sabotage. In other words, that the United States and, and the Europeans uh, and the world community are obligated to help Iran protect against uh, attack or sabotage. And so Rubio says, here's my question. If Israel decides it doesn't like this deal and wants to sabotage an Iranian nuclear program or facility, does this deal that we have just signed obligate us to help Iran defend itself against Israeli sabotage? And uh, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, so Secretary of Energy says, no, I don't think so. And Rubio says, well, that's, I, you know, I just read it to you. And Kerry says, no. And Rubio says, you know, it does not. Are you sure? And and Kerry basically says, no. And, 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 and Rubio says, quote, that's not how I read this. That's a problem. Somehow, somehow people think, people think that, maybe that maybe we need to actually help Iran protect itself against efforts to neutralize. That so that would be a problem. Okay. Okay. Last, last question here. Paul, I need from Monument. Um, um, I wonder if you can comment on another author's work, Jonathan, Jonathan Kahn. The Harbinger. The Harbinger. Um, he's, he's been speaking recently, recently and writing about uh, the Shemitah. Right. Um, um, and the Jubilee coming up, and I would give you Yeah, I, yeah, I, I thank you. That's an easy one. I'm not going to comment. So let me wrap it with a different question. Is there hope? I haven't. I 
haven't read the book. I've seen, I've seen some of his speeches, but I'm not, I'm not prepared to comment on it, except in the general, general sense that he and, he and many, many others are concerned that we're getting closer and closer and closer to God's, to God's judgment. And from, and here, from here, I travel, I travel up to upstate New York, the Adirondack Mountains, uh, near, where near where I used to grow up and hike as a kid. And, 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 and uh, I'm going to be teaching a Bible, Bible camp there for five days. Five days. And and the, set, uh, the series, series is called Living, Living like, like Jeremiah, Jeremiah in a Time, in a time of Coming Judgment. judgment. I will be posting those notes more willing and willing if they've got Wi-Fi as I teach it. I just say this because... Jeremiah, Jeremiah is, I've, I've, been, I've, been, I've, been, I've, been, I've been sort of hunkered sort of down, hunkered down, down Jeremiah, Jeremiah for the last for three and a half months, four months, four months, four months, and, and I, just, I just find, find Jeremiah, Jeremiah raised, raised up all to the call of the prophet in a time where God, God said, I am I going, to going to judge Judah, Judah and Jerusalem. And Jerusalem. It, it takes 55 years from years now, now to, to, to the actual, actual destruction, destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. B.C. And the Jews and getting carted off and slaves in Babylon. Fifty-five years, five years from then, the time that the king and Asa so evil, so God said, God said, bringing judgment, judgment to the actual final judgment. And Jeremiah served during five kings, four five kings during that season. How do you live when you are telling people judgment's coming? Coming. You've got to repent. You've got to turn. And most people don't. And so, so. I don't have an easy answer, but I've been praying about that, thinking about that, and I'll, I'll post some notes, some notes from that from that series, series uh, on my blog next week, or willing, willing, or certainly in the next couple of weeks, weeks. and uh, hopefully that'll give other people, people some time, some time to process, process that. that. Let me I'll I'll close. Thank you very much. Let me close on on good news. So, so you know, you know, God says in in the Bible that we Jews are a stiff-necked people. Stiff-necked, obstinate, proud. And the, and the Bible is basically, uh, among, among other things, things um, a um, book of our dirty laundry. laundry. That yeah, we were chosen, chosen but then we didn't want to be chosen. That we were given the word of God, the very word of God, to transform us and to change our lives and then to give to other people so that they would know God. And sometimes we did it and often we didn't. It's a painful book to read as a Jewish person. But the good news is, Jeremiah told us in the time that judgment was coming, yeah, but there's still hope, a hope in a future, as was mentioned on the screen, Jeremiah 29. And God said to Jeremiah, tell the people that a new covenant is coming, a new relationship between me and you, and I'm going to send a Messiah, and he's going to bring this new covenant, and then he's going to set up a kingdom, and he's going to reign, and it's all going to be good. That's coming. But a lot of... Judgment and heartache will come first. And so the Bible tells us that there's even a partial hardening on the Jewish people. Right? That, 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 but the good news is, it's, it's the, Paul said in Romans, it's a partial hardening. I mean, most Jewish people have a, a blindness and a hardness of their heart. They cannot see or hear or understand that Jesus is the Messiah that we've been waiting for for thousands of years. And so many of us don't accept but since it's partial, that means that some Jews do say yes and have said yes through history. My father is one of them. I'm one of them. My sons are four more. And, and we've met so many wonderful uh, people who by God's grace, not because we did anything special, we had a hardening and God lifted it. And our job now is to say, now that God has been so merciful not to send us to hell forever and ever and ever, but he opened our eyes, our hearts, 
and, and, and help us see that Jesus really is the Messiah that was promised and really does want to adopt us into his family and he wants to forgive all of our sins and give us eternal life as well as wisdom here on earth and hope and joy that, that, that wells up from within us. He wants to give us the Holy Spirit uh, to encourage us, to comfort us, to counsel us. That's an amazing offer. And for many Jewish people, we have been too blind and deaf and, and hardened to hear it, but God is opening our hearts. And now there are about 300,000 Jewish people around the world who have come to faith in the last 30 or 40 years in Jesus the Messiah and said, yes, adopt me. I want to be adopted. See, it is true that God says in the word that he chose us. Now, a lot of Gentiles are like, oh, you Jews, think you're so special. It's a chosen people. You know, it's like, um, look, most of us don't even want to be chosen. That, that's, that's our problem. We, we didn't want to be chosen. We're like, listen, uh, the Pharaoh chose us. Hitler chose us. <laughs> Stalin chose us. The Ayatollah chose us. We don't even want to be chosen. Choose somebody else. But it is true. God chose us, and he chose us to reveal himself to us, and that we, once we... Uh, understood him and accepted him and his Messiah, that we would go share it with others. Even people who hate us, even the Iranian regime, even ISIS. So here's the thing, the Bible is clear. It's not, yes, God chose us as Jews, but that's not enough. We need to choose him back. We need to say yes. And anyone, Jew or Gentile, who says, you know what, forget it. I, I've heard the, new, the good news, I've heard the Bible, I've heard the gospel, but I don't want it. I plead with you, if that's you tonight, repent. Repent sounds like a big word that used to be said, repent, you know, by big fiery southern preachers. But I came from the north, and, and, and I, I'm a Yankee at heart. Sorry if you're a southerner. But um, repent is the word to turn around. So we used to teach our kids, uh, we'd say, uh, listen, Noah, I want you to run in that direction, okay, away from daddy, and when I say stop, you stop. I said, ready, go, and he would run when he was a little kid, he'd run across the room, and we'd get across and head into the, the kitchen, I'd say, stop, Noah, he'd stop. I'd say, repent, Noah, and he would turn around. I would say, come back to daddy, and he'd come running, and he'd jump up in my arms, I'd hug him and kiss him. That's Repentance. We think we know what we're doing, but we start running from God. And God is saying, stop. You're going into dangerous territory. You're going away from me in a world that's going crazy, a world that's getting dark, a world that's getting evil. You don't do this. It might temporarily seem like a good idea, but it's not. You're going in the wrong direction. Stop, repent, turn around, and come back to your father who loves you and wants to take care of you and get you through to eternity and get you through this world with meaning, with purpose, having borne fruit, having done things for the Lord that he prepared for us to do. That's what repentance is. And you don't have to be Jewish to need to hear that message. We all need to hear that message. And if there's any of you here that are sort of struggling with that, I encourage you, tonight's the night. Give your heart fully to the Lord. So this last part is just what, we're in a moment where the Bible does say all Israel will be saved. Um, but you say, you know, what about this partial hardening? Well, it's starting to lift. 
I mean, 300,000 people, Jews coming to faith in the last 30 or 40 years, that's amazing. Most of that's in the last 10 years. But listen to this. There are now, there are now ministries in Israel that are doing uh, digital evangelism, uh, video evangelism online. And you heard that my father got asked to do one of his, these testimonies, to go and sit down for a couple of hours and just share his story. And then they'll edit that down into a six, seven, eight, nine minute video and they'll post it online. Listen to what's happening. In, for just Israelis who only speak Hebrew, Jewish believers have been preparing these videos of their testimonies and of a, of a clear gospel presentation. And did you know that just in the last year or so, 1.3 million individual viewers watched Hebrew evangelistic videos in Israel? 1.3 million views, individual viewers. Those are not hits, that's individual people. There's only six million Jews in the country. This is one out of six Jewish people who speak Hebrew. Now there could be some outside the country, but are watching videos that are about people telling themselves, I mean, telling about their story about coming to Jesus. In English, the videos that are being made in English, and it's a partnership of several different ministries that are doing this, there are, as of this moment, almost nine million individuals have watched the English videos of these Jewish testimonies. One video alone by a, a Jewish guy that looks right out of central casting. I mean, he's got the beard, he's got, you know, he just looks the part. And I encourage you to go to, uh, and watch this, but that video alone has been seen by almost six million. Six of the nine million was for one guy. And it's a very powerful message. Now, I, to me, that's exciting. Yes, Israelis are coming to faith, and yes, Jews are coming to faith around the world. But what's most dramatic at this moment is not the mass wave of, of actual salvations yet, but the openness, the curiosity, the hunger to hear Jewish people tell other Jewish people why they believe that Jesus is the Messiah and how they knew that they had been saved once they said yes to Jesus, how they really knew, and how other people knew that they'd been changed, that they'd been born again. This is huge. I'm not saying all nine million people that have seen the English ones are all Jews, many are Gentiles. I encourage you to go and watch these, to post them on your Facebook pages, to share them on Twitter and and other social media to spread this. But think of just the number of 1.3 million in Hebrew. There's not a lot of people who speak Hebrew that aren't Jewish. <laughs> I'm Jewish and I don't speak Hebrew. So, you know, 1.3 million. That's one in six Jews in Israel. And here's my final thought on that. First, it's exciting from the perspective of all nations will hear the gospel, right? That's what Jesus said what happened as things, as you hear wars, rumors of wars, persecution, apostasy, the gospel will be heard in every nation, including Israel. But there's one last point, and this concludes with you. Why is that important to you if you don't really care about Jewish evangelism or you're not particularly interested in missions or you're maybe you're not even a believer or you're struggling? This is why. When the gospel's been heard in every nation, Jesus is coming back. That's what the text says. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. It doesn't actually say every single person, but every nation will hear. 
in a way that they can hear it in their heart language. And then the end shall come. So this leads to you. If you don't know the Lord, the Lord may be coming back for us very soon. And if you don't come with us when he comes to get us, you have to go through a period that's called the tribulation. It will make ISIS's genocidal march seem like a, a, a day at the, at the beach. The evil that the, the book of Revelation describes that's coming in that period of time is off the charts horrifying. Don't get left in that situation. Secondly, if you know the Lord and you're born again, but you're struggling with where you are right now, you're not really walking the Lord. You came here because you wanted to hear about Iran and, or you're, somebody dragged you here and you're kind of like, oh man, I totally didn't see this coming, but now I'm here, I can't get out. First of all, I'm sympathetic, uh, you know, so just, or you thought you were coming to hear Joel Osteen or something else, I don't know, but it just, that I'm not so sympathetic about, but anyway. But let me say this, when you see the evil that's moving and these prophecies are coming true, wars, rumors of wars, persecution, it's all happening. When you see Israel being reborn as a country, Jews coming back to the land, including our family, these are the prophecies that say that we're getting close to Jesus. When the gospel is preached in every land, including Israel, Jesus said, when you see these things happening, know that my hand, that, uh, the, my, that I am at the door, my hand is on the door, I'm, right, I'm, I'm near. He's about to enter into history and come for us. And if you're a believer, but you're not really walking with the Lord, can I encourage you to get your heart right with Christ tonight, before you go to sleep, ideally before you leave here. If you're watching something, reading something, listening to something, doing something, thinking something that you'd be ashamed of when Jesus comes for us or when you die naturally and stand before the Messiah, could I, now's the time to repent, to, to get right with God, to clean that up, ask him to clean it up. If you are planning a major sin in your life right now, could I encourage you to postpone that? Uh, or better yet, just cancel your plans entirely? This is not a good time to be playing games that when Jesus comes, you would be ashamed. For any of us, we, this is not the time. We are really late in the game. But we're also really late in the night, so we're gonna close. And I want to just encourage you to spend time with the Lord and talk to him. I'm just going to close in a regular prayer, but I want to encourage you, talk to Jesus, ask him to help you. And there are pastors and others who can talk to you in more detail if you need. But I just don't want to end this night without saying, give your heart to Christ fully and completely, um, lest you face challenges that you really don't want to face. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you and we're so grateful for the good news. There's so much bad news, but you're the king, you're coming. You've told us the bad news would be coming and that would be indicators that we're getting closer and closer to you. We're grateful that the gospel is spreading into all nations, Muslim nations, Buddhist nations, through ministry architecture, through other ministries. Uh, and you're even reaching Israel with the gospel and Jews are listening like never before. Thank you. We thank you, Lord. 
I thank you for everybody in this room who, who, who has given their life to you and who's, who's trying to be faithful in, in serving in a ministry in some way, shape, or form. I pray their tribe would increase. And for anyone who's really struggling tonight, either they never made a decision, let tonight be the night they say, yes, Lord Jesus, come into my life. I believe you died on the cross. I believe you rose from the dead. I repent, I turn away from my sins and I ask you to come into my life and change me and, and save me and adopt me into your family. Lord, lead someone into that prayer, a heartfelt prayer of faith that they might be saved tonight. And for anyone who knows you but is struggling, let tonight be the night they apologize to you and ask for your mercy and your help and maybe even reach out to a trusted friend or a pastor to, to, to get the help they need to change course so that, that when you come for us or when we go to be with you, that none of us will be ashamed, that you will have had mercy on us and we will see you and embrace you and be so grateful that the end has come and that we're safe with you. We thank you for this time. We pray for mercy on our president, the president of the United States and his family, his top advisors. We pray that you would save them and, and, and bless them and, uh, and, and help them change course for our congressional leaders, the same thing, to do the right thing with regards to Iran. We pray for the leaders of Iran that you would save them, that you'd show mercy to them. We don't want them to go to hell any more than we want to go to hell, but they need you, Lord. Help them to turn away from their wicked ways. And we pray for the people and leaders of Israel and all the Arab countries that you'd show mercy on them. And you'd use us and ministries like Ministry Architecture and others to be part of what you're doing as you build your kingdom and then come to reign in it. Thank you for this time and for these people. And we pray with great thanksgiving in the name of our great Savior, our Messiah, our Lord, and our soon coming King, Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much.